It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm John Brown, chairman of Beyond Net Zero, and this is Net Zero and Beyond. In this series, we look at how the world can get to Net Zero and the pioneers hoping to make it happen. Each episode looks at a different part of society and a different solution. Today, I explore biodiversity and how, when it comes to climate change, we sometimes ask the wrong question. It's well known that the world's coral reefs are dying as the world heats up. In the past 20 years, they've dwindled by 50%, and by 2050, that could be as high as 90%. Not only is carbon dioxide heating up the planet, it's changing the nature of the soil and it's changing the nature of our ocean's biochemistry, affecting the organisms that depend on it. It's tempting, therefore, to see the move to net zero as a way of reversing the damage we're doing to our natural habitats. But over at the Natural History Museum in London, they think that the answer is perhaps not that straightforward. The change in biodiversity, the variety of plant and animal life on our Earth, is a problem which requires its own solutions, and they've got a team working on it. So to see whether there's hope as the world's biodiversity drops, I'm joined with someone at the forefront of tracking and educating people about humanity's impact on biodiversity. Doug Gurr is the head of the Natural History Museum. Now, Dr. Gurr, how are you? John, I'm extremely well. How are you? Biodiversity came into the frame for me very early on when you spoke to people who lived around what we were doing. I was particularly concerned about this in Alaska with the Alaska indigenous tribes. There were real reasons why you had to do this because it was their livelihood at stake, how they lived, how they subsisted. And as time went by, you could see more and more of this happening. I remember flying over West Papua and looking at what looked like a very interesting forest canopy, only to look down to see that it had been edited rather severely and people had taken trees out and put in palm oil and the consequences were extreme. Changed the nature of the animal habitat, changed the nature of the soil, the soil was being degraded and would eventually blow away. One of the things I found, uh, Doug, was that 
in order to get your hands around biodiversity, you had to look at lots and lots of different things. And if you weren't very careful, you'd almost lose the plot. You know, you'd talk to someone and say, well, I've got all these different things I need to look at. And they'd say, well, that's great. But how do we actually handle this? What is the one thing or two things that we could do that would make a difference? No, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's, it's a challenging subject. And in, and in many ways, you know, if you look at the extraordinary work that's been done to raise the, the awareness around carbon and climate, I think part of that is just making it understandable and explainable. Part of it is having, if you like, a singular measure we can look at, you know, global warming. It's a single number. We can focus on it. And I think part of it is also being clear about what do we actually want people to do. And I don't think those of us in the biodiversity world, if you like, have historically made it as simple. I think even going back to the, is it a crisis? I think it suffers from two things. One, exactly as you say, it's so complex. It's so multifaceted. How do we get to a singular measure? I think that's hard. You know, do you look at extinction rates or do you look at particular species or do you look at the oceans? I think the other thing that, that perhaps has glowed the awareness is, is the point where, you know, people can look out of the window they see trees, they see flowers, they see birds, and they sort of say, what's the problem? This is, this is the thing that was really the motivation for us of saying, how can we come up with a singular measure that helps people understand, well, what is biodiversity? And that's why the museum launched, has just launched what we call the, the Biodiversity Trends Explorer. Uh, and what this does is very simple. Uh, our scientists have taken a representative sample of species. It's actually about 58,000 species. They've then meticulously mapped out many, many different types of ecosystems all around the planet. Uh, and believe it or not, the teams have done this for 22,000 different types of ecosystem. And then the clever bit, if you like, is you can take any piece of land on the Earth's surface and quite solve the oceans yet, but let's at least take any piece of land on the Earth's surface. And you can use both machine learning and geoposition to allocate it to one of these ecosystems. And that gives you a snapshot. It's never as simple as a single number, but as you and I know, something that we can all focus on that I help will really you know, drive some action. You can set a baseline. Uh, exactly. So we know where we are, where we are. And there's been tons of damage, uh, but we, we can measure where we are. And then periodically, we measure what direction we're going in. Is it positive or negative? And therefore, what can we do about it? Measure where we are, measure the change, distribute the activity and accountability to get something done. Then we actually make progress. And, and it sounds to me like in this complex area of biodiversity, where, you know, maybe 100, 200 factors, if we have one, at least we can make it equivalent, let's say, to a science-based target for greenhouse gas emissions reductions a pathway to do things better. That, that's exactly right, John. And the measure we've, we've tried to come up with, and it's not the only measure, but we think it's good enough, if you like, to, to drive decisions and actions, is, is what we're calling intactness, which, if you like, is the measure for any given region of the Earth's land surface, what percentage of its pristine natural biodiversity still exists. So if the globe was at 100%, we would be at pristine natural everywhere in the world. And we can measure this, obviously, at a global level, at a country level, at a regional level, or even at the level of an individual corporation that might have operations around the world. And I can give you some numbers, which is that now there's no absolute at what point to be in crisis, but the general accepted view of the scientific community is that when intactness dips below 90%, we should worry. We've just finished the data for 2020, and we know that global intactness is at 75%. So that is a massive concern for us. Uh, we can also look at that at individual country levels. And this would be incredibly important, as you say, as we start to distribute targets, what is the most equitable way. 
And generally what we observe is that in a way that we shouldn't be surprised by, if you like, the more developed parts of the world have been stable over the last 10 or 20 years, but at quite a low level. So the UK, for example, is actually only at 53% compared to that 75% global and a 90% national. It's actually the lowest in the G7 and one of the bottom 10% in the world. Now, a lot of that's historic damage, of course, industrial revolution, massive agriculture. But to your point, we can do something about it. We can change land use, we can rewild, and we can start to measure progress. Uh, Interestingly, a lot of the more developing world is at much higher levels, but declining fast. And that's where actually being able to say these are real biodiversity hotspots, whether it's in, you know, Colombia or, you know, Papua New Guinea or Puerto Rico, these are real biodiversity hotspots where it makes sense globally for us to try and surround, protect, preserve. And then the bit we particularly want to encourage, as you say, is we can actually do something about this. I mean, the one great news about biodiversity is that if you allow land to recover and you rewild it in the right way, you can actually see demonstrable change and improvement in a relatively short space of time. I mean, life is incredibly resilient. This is uh, almost a chicken and egg question, which is, you know, if climate change, as it is happening, and let's suppose temperatures rise, then you may not be able to restore biodiversity because it's the climate that's changing it. Equally, if you don't restore biodiversity, the climate will change, you'll do something else. Absorption of CO2 into the soil or the oceans will change. And so everything is related to everything else. And it's very difficult to explain that to people. I hope we can explain that this is a system. It's a very funny word, system, but it means that everything's related to everything else. And that is what we're talking about here. I I think that's exactly right. And as you say, it's in some ways, it's that complexity, which is so intrinsically linked with everything. It's why these are hard questions, because nothing happens in isolation. There are always unintended consequences. But interestingly, I think where I do take a slightly optimistic view is that actually, if you look at all of the work that has been done by science, whether it's on climate or on biodiversities, it does show us that there is, a, there is a path, exactly as you say, that keeps us in balance. It's a narrow path. It's a narrow and it's a difficult and it's a hard road. But we're not at a point at which it is impossible to turn around the biodiversity loss. We can actually reverse the decline. We can do this. But it, what it does require, exactly as you say, is sustained, aligned action from many players all around the world. And because we're still at that point where humanity, if you like, has choices. Um, If we leave it too long, we won't have those choices. Before we finish, I'd like to just add one other topic, which is uh, just like a little talk about the oceans. Very more complex problem, trying to understand what is happening in the oceans. We can obviously measure its chemistry, probably not in too many places in the world. The oceans are rather large, but we can sample that. But what can we do to understand what's happening to the life in the oceans? Yeah, it's a it's a brilliant question. As you say, if you just think about the the volume of the oceans, they are they are vast and they are still deeply unexplored. I think I think there's a couple of really interesting things we can do. I mean, first, I think we will make better decisions if we move from the position of understanding. So I'll give you a simple example. You know, it's fantastic that so many governments around the world are making commitments to decarbonize and to move to electric vehicles. That's tremendous. But as you know, if we're going to move entirely to electric vehicles, we're going to need a huge number of batteries. And if you need batteries, you need lithium, you need cobalt. And there is not enough lithium and cobalt available right now to supply the needs that we will have for batteries. 
So where are you going to find this? You have to mine. You can mine terrestrially. We know that can be damaged. You can also look at the deep oceans. And we know that, for example, on the floor of the deep oceans, they're very rich in these polymetallic nodules, which are these little lumps that actually sit about the size of a little ball that sit on the ocean's floor and are very rich in these minerals. But actually, and therefore inevitably, there will be a question of should we consider you know, actually extracting these minerals from the ocean floors rather than from terrestrial land. It's a fair question. And if we don't extract them, we can't decarbonize. But we understand very little about the ecosystems there. So one thing we are doing is, you know, we have a wonderful team of scientists called Adrian Glover who spend their life on ships, literally trying to, trying to understand what is the biodiversity of the deep oceans, what are the floors, so that when we come to make decisions about how do we extract minerals, we can do it in the most sustainable possible way. Uh, the other bit, which I, by the way, I find absolutely fascinating is, we, you know, we're blessed with the fact that some of our forebears were very far thinking. So, for example, the Challenger expedition in the 1870s. But they did extraordinary work on sampling deep oceans and taking mollusks and, and all of those, those sea samples, those collections actually still exist. And interestingly, there's been fascinating work that we've been able to do that correlates things like the, the thickness of mollusk shells with the known environmental conditions. And what we've seen is that as the oceans become a bit more acidic, we've actually seen a thinning in the, the, the thickness of that mollusk shells. You can begin to start to build, understand if you like, how has life responded to past changes in environmental conditions in the ocean, which I think gives us the best chance of building the models that will give us a chance of understanding how it's likely to respond in changes we see today. There are great people involved in in, in the challenge of biodiversity, you know, can we actually restore and can we really make people aware of what's going on? And at the local level, I've seen many, many things happening, really at a very small local level and equally at a very grand global level. And this is an area where practical activity can take place at all different levels. Uh, I think if we can understand where we are, measure where we are, and give people an objective, a real objective, which will make a change, then I do think this is an area where we can make positive uh, contributions to the future of humanity on the world. Uh, and I think that's really crucial here, that we've got something which we can be optimistic about. And I like to think that that's the thing that drives most people, optimism, not threats. And we can really do something constructive. Brilliant. Thank John, you. Pleasure. Thank you, Doug. Fantastic. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello. I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation, and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it? And how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.